Hi, this is Trent England with Save Our State, back with another one of our Six Questions podcasts. Very glad to have Terry Schilling here with us. He is the executive director of the American Principles Project. And uh, Terry, that's that's my first question. Uh, you're uh, somewhat small and, and somewhat uh, uh, new group, at least compared to you know some of the Heritage Foundations and Cato Institutes and folks like that. Tell people, what what is American Principles Project? Well, thanks so much for having me, Trent. I'm really excited to have this discussion. Um, the simplest way to explain what APP does is we are the NRA for families. And what I mean by that is we organize the same way that the NRA organizes gun owners and politics to protect the Second Amendment. We organize families in politics to protect children, family formation, and all the other ways that government and uh, the culture is attacking us. So we work in campaigns and elections. We work in public policy to represent families and fight for them um, because obviously the family is the most important institution uh, of, you know, of all mankind, not just of our country. Uh, and it's really important to have a special interest group um, that's fighting for our interest in campaigns and elections and then also public policy. So we're around seven and a half million dollars. Hopefully this year we'll get to uh, between 12 and 15. That's my goal to, to win some elections for the family in the upcoming midterm. But we work on, you know, we use issues like the whole transgender extremism critical race theory, um, and all the other ways that uh, that the families under attack and the innocence of our children is under attack. We use that in politics to make sure that voters know what's going on and know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Well, Terry, this, this conversation could not be better timed because while I usually spend my time defending the Electoral College and working on issues like that, last night I was in uh, you know, relatively small town Oklahoma at a school board meeting testifying against some of this transgender ideology. And, uh, you know, you work on these issues all the time and I, and I don't. And I'm curious what your take is on what's going on here. I mean, it's it's standing there in this town uh, at this this uh, school district office. I mean, it, it, you, know, you just scratch your head and say, how did we get here? as a society, what, what's going on? Well, there's a few things that have happened. The first and foremost um, reason why this is happening is because America has slowly created, uh, over the last few decades, slowly created an economy where both parents have to work just to make ends meet. You know, back in the 50s and 60s and even early 70s, parents could provide for their entire family with one income. Now, mom and dad both have to work. In a lot of cases, they have to work multiple shifts, which means that there's less time to be paying attention to what the kids are learning in schools. And what that has done is it's given an opening to progressive activists to take over our school boards, to take over our schools, to take over the news media, all these other institutions, while parents have been busy at work providing for their kids. Um, secondarily, I think that there are two other factors. So this is happening both at the federal and the local level. Uh, and what I mean by that is the federal government is providing through the Department of Education what's known as federal grant agreements uh, through the Department of Education that require schools locally to start up uh, usually they're known as diversity, inclusion, equity programs, or anti-bullying programs. These are all disguised um, to uh, you know, push basically a, a racist and, and uh, transgender agenda uh, is teaching our kids all of this crazy stuff. So at the federal level, 
they're requiring local schools across the country to accept this type of curriculum and these types of programs in their schools. But then on the local level, progressive activists have taken over our school boards and they aren't even putting up a fight when the federal government gives out these federal grant agreements. And so what I tell parents is, it's important to, to fight this, this problem, both at the root cause, the federal grant agreements, but then also at the local level to make sure that we have school board officials who are gonna stand up for our, the interests of our children. Basically, there's a lot at play here. It's mostly because we've, we've put families on the back burner when it comes to the economy, and that's given a huge opening to progressive activists to take over our schools and lots of, other, uh, lots of our other uh, cultural and public institutions and, and um, inflict their agenda on us. Yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really interesting and insightful because that's exactly what I saw last night. I mean, you know, parents, when they heard about the transgender bathroom policy in the school district, they went to the school board members thinking, you know, sort of surely this isn't true or it's a mistake. And what they found was, I mean, and, and people just didn't know this. They have a school board that is completely taken over by the woke left. And, and they, I mean, they literally had no idea. They just sort of aghast at all this. So yeah, I think, you know, that you've got exactly as you said, you, you've got a federal agenda, but you know, these folks are active at the local level. And in many cases, they're way ahead of people who, you know, just just want to have only girls in the girls' bathroom, which seems like a pretty thing. So, so Terry, yeah. let, me, let me jump into the third question here, which, which is, you know, staying with all of this, you do have, you know, we, we talked about the local, we talked about the federal. In red states like Oklahoma, at least at the state level, you have some pushback. Oklahoma has passed legislation defending, you know, women's rights to participate in female-only sports. Is, is this going to catch on in some purple and blue states? I mean, I think people have seen what happened in Virginia that seemed, uh, you know, was focused on both CRT and, and the transgender issues. I mean, do you see this being an issue that is going to continue to gain traction in purple states and maybe even, you know, flip some states from being purple or blue to red? Absolutely. So, so two parts to that question. One, is this going to start catching on in purple states? I think so. I think that the movement from the people is so strong and they, you have a lot of outraged parents and, and young women who are upset about these policies being enacted at the local level to the point where Arizona, which I consider to be a pretty purple state, just passed legislation that not only protected women's sports, but also banned uh, gender uh, transition surgeries for minors. Uh, this was signed into law by a pretty moderate Republican governor in a very purple state that has two Democratic senators. Um, and so I think this is not only going to catch on in the purple states, I also think that this is a major opportunity for conservatives and really just Americans who care about biological reality to start making ground and headway politically and through public policy in these other purple states. And why I say that is because we have poll tested this these issues, this whole set of issues re regarding critical race theory, the transgender extremism, even the LGBT curriculum that's being pushed in kindergarten, we've tested this and it's extremely popular among Democrats, independents and Republicans. What we're really seeing is the elite opinion stream has radicalized. And what I mean by that is the wealthiest, most powerful, well-connected people in this country, the top uh, of American culture, 
has radicalized. They're really the only ones that support this type of stuff. And I'll give you an example. The, the popular opinion stream supports the, the Ron DeSantis parental rights education bill. Um, even 45% uh, of Democrats in Florida support his legislation to prohibit public school teachers from talking to young children about sexual orientation and gender identity. These are not controversial issues. In fact, they're very commonsensical. And in fact, I don't think we should have to pass laws to ban it. I think we should instead have to pass laws to allow these 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 uh, teachers to have these types of very sensitive and, and a lot of times inappropriate conversations with children, especially as it pertains to um, parents not even knowing about these conversations. So I think not only is this catching on in purple states, it is. Uh, we This is a major opportunity to win over a lot of moderate and persuadable Democrat and independent voters over to the pro-America, pro-family coalition that we're building. Talking with Terry Schilling, he's the executive director of the American Principles Project. Uh, Terry, the, the website, this doesn't count as a question, by the way, but the website for American Principles Project? It's, it's real simple. It's AmericanPrinciplesProject.org. You can Perfect. find out about all of our work there, or you can join our membership organization. So we're, it's called The Big Family. Uh, you know, you got Big Pharma, Big Oil, Big Tobacco. We're building Big Family to make the family most important special interest group, but that's just savethefamily.app. Perfect, savethefamily.app. So Terry, question number four, you, you mentioned the radicalization of elites on some of these other issues, but one thing that I've certainly noticed in my lifetime is the, the transformation of the language and I, I guess the agenda that the left has when it comes to abortion. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and I think you see this, this parallel in American history in the first half of the 19th century, where we went from at the time of the American founding where slavery was this, this thing that was evil and should go extinct, but it was necessary. And nobody would really defend slavery as being good. They just would defend it as being a reality that had to be dealt with. Like saying, you know, like Bill Clinton saying abortion should be safe, legal and rare. And today, I mean, the, you get you get the left. I mean, talking about abortion as being a, a good thing. Um, I mean, it, it's uh, it's just it's just wild and bizarre, seems totally beyond the mainstream. But what do you think has caused that change on the left? And do you think that that will engender the same kind of kind of pushback and sort of revive conservatives willingness to engage in, in you know, the, the pro-life issue. Well, ultimately, I think that the reason that the left is radicalizing on abortion to where you're having elected Democratic governors endorse abortion even after birth, right, infanticide. Uh, the reason that they're radicalizing is because I think they get the sense that they're losing this issue. And when you start to feel like you're losing and that it's inevitable that you're going to lose a fight or a race or a, or, or campaign, you get very desperate and you start um, flailing. And I think what we're dealing with is, is some flailing here from the left. The other thing is, I, I like your, your reference to slavery. And while I think that abortion and slavery are obviously much different institutions, I do think they are peculiar to the American experiment. Both obviously infringe on um, the rights of Americans uh, at different stages and for different reasons. But I really think that uh, part of the reason that the left has made so much traction on abortion and why we haven't been able to overturn it is because they've changed the language around abortion, right? It's, it's, it's pro-choice, it's not pro-abortion where, you know, when we were fighting slavery, you were either with the abolitionist crowd and wanted to eliminate slavery or you were with the pro-slavery uh, crowd. And 
you know, to put in comparison, calling uh, people who support abortion in this country pro-choice would be kind of like calling uh, people who supported slavery pro-property rights. Um, it's not fair. It's not honest. It hides uh, the truth. And the fact of the matter is, is that slavery was an, a, an affront to human rights and abortion is the complete elimination of human rights for an entire class of American citizens. And so I think that the more that uh, Americans see the truth and reality about abortion, just like we saw the truth and reality about slavery, the more Americans will reject it. So I think that they're flailing right now. I think that they see the writing on the wall. They, they know that they're losing, that their time is running out, and that's why they're getting so extreme. So Terry, uh, yeah, I, I could not agree more with that. Terry, question number five. Uh, we're, we're not just seeing our culture under attack. We're seeing our whole constitutional structure of government. H how is that intertwined with the family? And, and how important is it to defend our constitutional structure of government in, in order to make sure that we can defend the family and really vice versa? So the family, I mean, it's, it's such a cliche. It's been repeated ad nauseum. Uh, you know, the family is the most important institution. The family is the bulwark for freedom. All of that. Um, it's been repeated so much, it's just conventional wisdom. But we uh, did a, a study in 2019. We looked at how family structures impact ideology, political stances, and, and, and also voting behavior. The results of family and the, and the, um, the impact that family formation has on a host of social uh, outcomes is very obvious, right? Uh, children raised in a loving home with two uh, of their parents do much better than children raised in an unmarried home uh, without both parents. Uh, so we wanted to take a look at how these uh, structures impact voting behavior. And what we found is that the kids that were raised in married households that go to church on Sunday that have you know, a, a loving household with two parents involved, they tend to know more about America. They tend to respect what America stands for. They have a greater understanding of freedom. They have a, a bigger appetite for allowing for more freedom and dissent. And the children who were raised and never married or cohabitating households, they tended to prefer not just the Democratic Party, but radical forms of socialism, like socialized medicine and a host of other issues like abortion and, and transgender um, surgeries for minors and all of that. And so I think that ultimately what, it, what the family does is it raises the next generation of Americans. And when you do that in a loving household with both parents present, it not only strengthens the children, it strengthens the mother and father as well. You know, uh, the chairman of our board, Sean Filer, he refers to, the fam uh, refers to uh, this all as the crucible of the family. And what he means by that, I think, is that when you get married, that's the first time in your life when you're responsible for another human being, right? Where you have to take care of someone else, where you have to you know, cater to their needs and protect them. And then when you have your child for the first time, it's like that on steroids. And when you aren't getting married, when you aren't um, having a family, when you aren't having children, you don't really have as much of an investment in the future. So you tend not to care as much about the national debt, about too much spending, about infringements on our freedom, because you're not living for anyone else, you're living for yourself. And so there are a lot of reasons for why I think the family is a bulwark for freedom and the American experiment and ultimately the constitution or our rights. But ultimately I think it comes down to uh, this crucible, the family concept where it forces you to really evaluate what you're on this earth for and what your priorities are. Yeah, no, that's, 
Uh, that as a as a husband and a, and a father of three, that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, Terry, uh, our our last question is always the same on our Six Questions podcast. Who is your favorite founding father, and why? Uh, you know, that, that's an easy one. It's uh, it's George Washington. I think that George Washington um, was the penultimate American. He. Uh, not only served his country, not only loved his country, he kept serving his country. He kept loving his country. He set an example for all of us. You know, he was given power. I mean, he was given the keys to the kingdom, right? He was offered everything, fame and glory, and, and, and basically to be the king of America. And instead of accepting that, he turned it over to the people. Um, and for that, I think he deserves a lot of credit. Um, he was a great man. He was a strong man. You know, there's a really funny story about uh, uh, Governor Morris from Maryland. And the, the story goes like this. Essentially, George Washington had a very big reputation. He was a stoic man. He was a strong man. And he was very principled. And he had worked these out. He had, his private virtues were just as strong as his public virtues. And Governor Morris was uh, dared to go up to uh, uh, General Washington at a fundraiser or at a dinner party slap him on the back and say, good evening, governor, how, or, uh, general, how are you? And he did this. He didn't realize what a big deal it was. Well, when he slapped him on the back, uh, Morris wrote a letter to a colleague who doubted the story. And he said that Washington turned to him and gave him a look that made him feel like dying. It was the worst look he ever, ever had. And he later wrote about it. He said, I won the bet, but I paid a dear price for it. And so I just, when I think of my favorite founding father, it's it's most definitely in George Washington. He, he really loved this country. He didn't want the keys to the kingdom. He wanted to turn it over to the people. He was a populist. Um, and and he, he lived a, a life of public and private virtue that I think is unmatched to anyone. And I think that we should really do more of a, a better job looking up to him and looking at his example for how to live our private lives and also how to be active and engaged in politics. Absolutely. He was tested and he passed the test. Terry Schilling, Executive Director of the American Principles Project. Thank you so much for the work that you do. And thank you for being with me on our Six Questions podcast. One more time, share your uh, the, the different ways people can be connected with you and, and what you do. Yeah, so you can check me out on all the social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, all of that at Schilling1776. Or you can check out our website at AmericanPrinciplesProject.org. So uh, I really appreciate talking to you, Trent. This has been a really fun discussion and I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you.